morning, go ahead and open up with me to the book of John. We'll be in John chapter 2 this morning, starting in verse 1. If you will pray with me real quick before we get started. Father God, I thank you so much for um, this morning. I thank you for all of us who were able to make it here this morning. God, I thank you... Um, for this opportunity that we have to come together um, and celebrate Advent together um, this Sunday morning. God, I pray that um, this be a time of worship as we study your word, and I pray that you work on our hearts, um, prepare us for what you have this morning, and help us to just see um, the incredible grace and mercy that is provided to us in your gospel, God, and I pray that that give us hope um, and give us something to look forward to as we know that you're coming again. God, I thank you for everyone's here. I pray that you be with me. Um, as I preach this text, that you let it be um, your words, God, and let it all go to your glory. God, I pray that your gospel be illuminated in the work of Jesus um, way heavier on our hearts this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so over the past couple of weeks, Byron and Joe have both explained and reiterated um, what Advent means and what this, this thing is that we're celebrating throughout this month. Um, and basically what this Advent celebration amounts to is two biblical truths, and that is, first of all, we're celebrating that Christ has come to earth, and second, we're celebrating the fact that he's going to return again. So we're celebrating, first and foremost, what Christ has already done. We're celebrating the fact that he came to earth, that the Son of God took on flesh in the form of a human baby, that he proceeded to live a perfect life, completely fulfilling the Old Testament covenant until he ultimately sacrificed his life on the cross, dying the death that we as sinners deserved, in order that we might be justified for our sinfulness. But that's not it. We're not just looking back. We're also looking ahead in celebration of what Christ is going to do later on. So we're also celebrating this good news that Christ's work isn't finished yet, that it didn't end with his death on the cross, that he was raised from the dead, and that one day Christ is going to return again. And when he does, once and for all, he's going to ultimately redeem his people back to him and restore creation back to its perfect working order. So what we're doing in Advent is first and foremost, we're finding comfort in the fact that Jesus' work on the cross is finished and that because of his work on the cross that has been completed, if we put our faith in him, we can be justified for our sins. But we're also looking forward to the day when we no longer have to worry about this world that we live in, this broken world full of sickness and sin and death and everything that's bad and miserable and wrong with the world, and we can finally live in peace and joy in this perfect restored relationship with our creator. And in light of this Advent celebration, I think you would be hard-pressed to find a passage of Scripture that more beautifully ties these two truths together than this one that we're going to look at this morning, and that is the story of Jesus at the wedding feast in Cana. So if you will read with me, starting in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So here what we have is the first of seven signs that are performed by Jesus throughout John's gospel. And it's important going into this that we recognize the distinction that John makes here to refer to what Jesus did as a sign rather than a miracle. See, with a miracle, the event itself is the central focus. So when we refer to it as a miracle, we're focusing on the actual miracle, the event itself that took place. That's what we marvel at. However, with a sign, there's a much more revelatory nature there. So this means that this miracle, it's incredible, it's this big unexplained event, but what's happening is this is meant to point us ahead to something else. So they weren't just these acts of power and might, but they were Jesus' way of disclosing something to us that had previously been hidden before. So the point that John's making throughout his gospel is that by performing these signs, Jesus is actually revealing something to us about himself and about what he has come to earth to do. So while at the surface level, this passage almost just seems like Jesus rolling in and saving the day with this, this neat party trick that he has, but the reality is that Jesus is actually intentionally using this event at the wedding in Cana to kickstart his ministry in order to reveal exactly who he is and what he's going to do in his time on earth. And so we see in the first verse here that there's a problem. First of all, this takes place at a wedding feast. And at this time and in this culture, weddings were no small event by any means whatsoever. They were a very big deal. They would have people come from all over the region to celebrate these marriages. Um, these weddings were often thoughtfully planned in advance. Um, they, they let people know very far ahead of time in order that people could make preparations and come to these weddings. Gift giving was a very big deal at these events. Um, these gifts at these weddings, they were things that were carefully thought out. They were things that were, that were under, understood to be a way to bestow honor on the families of the bride and the groom. See, it wasn't like today where we go to a wedding and last minute we snag something off the registry, right? These were gifts that were very well thought out. There was a, a bunch of thought and a bunch of planning that went into these wedding events because they were very important. See, the union of marriage was held in very, very high regard in this culture. And because of that, a wedding was a massive event. It was an event to be celebrated by everyone around. And in these massive wedding celebrations, they would have a feast. And these feasts, they could last up to a week at a time, anywhere from three days to up to a week. They would have this massive feast, this huge party. And in this feast, there were always two non-negotiables, food and wine. These were things that you had to have. If you're going to throw a party this big, a celebration this large with this many people coming, you have to have plenty of food, you have to have plenty of wine, you have to have both of these things, and you need them in abundance. In fact, these wedding celebrations, they were such a big deal to the culture that if you didn't follow these appropriate customs, they could bring about public shame on the bride and the groom and their families, and in some cases, they could even lead to legal action. So just to have a little bit of context going into this passage, we need to understand that Jesus isn't rolling into some small ceremony with family and friends. This is a very big event, and this event is a very big deal. And when we understand that, it helps us better understand the crisis that's at hand here when we read in verse 3 that the wine ran out. And John doesn't tell us why the wine ran out. He doesn't tell us specifically what happened. So we don't know if it was some miscalculation. We don't know if it was due to a lack of planning on somebody's part. We don't know if it was due to um, a lack of financial ability on the groom's part to provide enough wine for the celebration. 
However, while we don't know exactly why they ran out of wine, we can likely chalk it up to some form of human error, right? So somewhere down the line, somebody dropped the ball, and because of that, now they've run out of wine in this feast, and party's over. And in order for us to get a full understanding of the text here, we need to understand that this wouldn't have just been like a small inconvenience for the guests. It's not like you go to a wedding today and they don't have an open bar. This was, this was very important. Not having wine at a wedding ceremony here would have brought an abrupt end to this week-long celebration. And it would have also gone ahead to bring about public shame on the wedding party and the families involved. And it wasn't just because of the physical means that wine brings to the party. See, wine was also symbolic of joy. See, the Jewish people, they were very familiar with passages such as Psalm 104.15 that talks about wine gladdening the heart of man. Or Judges 9.13 that talks about wine bringing cheer to God and man. And so to the Jewish mind, wine was symbolic of joy. So it wasn't just about getting drunk and turning up at this wedding. This was a symbol of joy, a symbol of celebration. In fact, there was a very popular rabbinical saying at this time that said, without wine, there is no joy. So it isn't just that the party doesn't have any more alcohol. There's a much deeper meaning here that there is a shortage of joy in this wedding feast. And when we begin to understand it through that lens, we start to get an idea of the bigger picture that's about to be revealed in this sign that Jesus is going to perform. See, the shortage of wine is actually symbolic to the human condition. Every person who has ever lived in all of eternity at some point faces a shortage of joy in their life. And the reason that this is such a big deal to humans is because as humans, our worlds revolve around joy, right? We revolve around this pursuit of this feeling of joy. See, when God created us, he created us perfectly in this perfect working relationship with him where we are completely fulfilled in his presence. However, because of our sinfulness, we've been separated from God. And now we have this emptiness and we're trying to fill that with joy, pursuing it in any avenue that we can find it. And that's the tragedy here is that as humans, the one thing that we crave the most, the thing that we were designed to crave the most is the one thing that we cannot find here on earth. And so now as a result, what we see is we find ourselves trying to pursue this, this joy through any avenue possible. And there are several examples of this. We see it in friendships, in relationships. We try to find joy in our marriages, maybe trying to build the perfect family, the perfect household. We try to find joy in our jobs, in our hobbies, in the pursuit of financial gain. A lot of us try to find joy by filling our lives up with a bunch of stuff that we don't need. If we can just keep buying things, that'll make us happy. If you're anything like me, maybe you search for joy through the validation of others. You want other people to tell you, hey, you're doing a good job. Hey, I like you. That's where that joy comes from. But regardless of what it is, wherever we're pursuing this joy in our lives, we're all desperately stuck in this cycle of searching for it day in and day out. And what we always find is that these things that we try to put our joy in, eventually they run dry. Eventually, like the wedding right here, the wine's going to run out. There is no more joy. So let's see Jesus' response. Read with me in verses 3 through 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. His mother said to her servants, do whatever he tells you. So as the panic from this lack of wine begins to ensue, Jesus' mother, she comes to him first. She approaches him and she tells him the news. She just says they've run out of wine. 
And the fact that Mary comes to Jesus in this moment along with his response implies that Mary is hoping that Jesus will do something about the problem here. See, while Mary may not be fully aware of what Jesus is capable of yet, she certainly knows what she has experienced firsthand so far, and she knows that God is at work in him and that he is capable of solving a problem like this. However, what we see in Jesus' response is this abrupt and almost seemingly harsh response that comes out of nowhere. It's almost as if Jesus just like snaps at Mary like that. And if you're like me, when you read the Bible, I have this really bad habit when I'm reading by myself and I run into things like this that I don't feel like fit the story the way they should, where I just kind of skim over them, move on, and I'm like, ah, that's probably the way it's supposed to be. I'm not going to read too much into that. Because if I read too much into that, that might raise more questions and I don't need to wrestle with all that right now. See, it's a lot easier for me to just skim over something like this and just play it off like it didn't happen instead of have to wrestle with that and figure out why Jesus talked to Mary like that in that moment. That doesn't make sense to me. However, the problem with that is that's basically me assuming that Jesus made a mistake here. So that's basically me stripping the weight of Jesus' words here saying like, ah, he probably didn't mean to say that. Like, oh, Jesus is probably stressed. He's just flying off the cuff here. He didn't mean to say that. Obviously, he didn't mean it because he completed the miracle right after. But the problem with assuming that Jesus didn't mean that, that Jesus made a mistake, is that would be like me stripping him of his deity. So Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. And for me to assume that he could have made a mistake right here would mean that he couldn't have been fully God because God isn't capable of making mistakes. So by skimming over a passage like that, ignoring it, not wanting to read too much into it, what I'm doing is assuming that all of Jesus' words didn't have a specific purpose, which they did. But the good thing about Byron asking you to preach is that you don't have a choice. You don't get to skim over those passages. You have to dig in. You have to break it down. You have to figure out why Jesus responded the way he did. So I looked into it. So let's dig into Jesus' response here. First of all, he calls her woman rather than mother or Mary. All the guys in here were like, ooh, like, that's, not, that's not good, right? We don't, we don't talk to women like that. I'm not necessarily a very smart man, but I know that I'm not going to call my mom woman. Probably not going to call my wife woman. Probably not going to call any woman woman. And some commentators that I was reading, they tried to write that off as like a term of endearment. They tried to say, like, in this culture, that was Jesus being respectful to his mother, something like that. But most commentators argue that what Jesus is actually doing right here by calling Mary woman is putting some separation between him and her. See, now that Jesus' ministry has begun, he's no longer subject to the authority of Mary as his mother, but is now acting solely under the authority of God the Father. So by referring to her as woman right here, Jesus is putting some separation between himself, himself and Mary, and he's beginning this journey down the path that's been ordained for him by God. And it sounds harsh, but the reality is Jesus didn't come to earth to be Mary's son. See, he has a specific purpose from this point forward, and everything is going to work towards that purpose starting now. And we see in the rest of his words that that purpose is clearly on his mind in the words that follow. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. See, this is the first of many references in the book of John to Jesus' hour. And in every instance, it's referring to Jesus' death on the cross. So what we have here in this moment where the wedding feast has run dry and Mary is asking for his help, we see Jesus looking ahead to the cross. He's thinking about his hour that's coming later on. 
And when we take into account the symbolism here, we get a better idea of why. So it's as if Jesus sees what's happening here and he recognizes in this moment that this is a metaphor for exactly why he had to come to earth in the first place. See, Jesus sees the devastation in this wedding party. He sees the humiliation. He sees these people lacking wine and joy. He sees this party that's not living up to expectations. And he knows that he is the only one who can fix that problem in that moment. And better yet, he knows what it's going to cost to fix that. See, we see Jesus almost sorrowful, sorrowful here as he thinks about what he's going to have to do, as he sets his mind ahead to the cross, recognizing that this is the very reason he came in the first place. I thought Keller put it perfectly. He says, Jesus sat there sipping the coming sorrow in the midst of joy so that you and I can sit in this sorrowful world sipping the coming joy. See, we see in this moment that Jesus' mind is immediately set ahead to the cross because this is the exact reason he had to come. So notice what he does. Pick up with me in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. So we see here that we have these six stone water jars that John makes sure to tell us are there for Jewish rites of purification. And what these were, they were there for the ceremonial washings of the Jewish people, which means that they would use the water from these jars that was recognized to be cleansing and undefiled, and they would use that to wash their hands before eating. And this wasn't just a sanitary thing. It wasn't just good manners to wash your hands before eating. This was their way of symbolically cleansing themselves before taking part in this celebration. And so we see that Jesus instructs his servants to fill each of these six water jars up. And when they have com been completely filled, he wants them to draw some of the water out and take it to the master of the feast. And it's at this point that we find out that not only has the water been transformed into wine, but it's been transformed into a wine unlike any other that these people had had before. But again, notice how rich the symbolism is in what Jesus does right here. So first of all, he instructs that these stone water pots be filled completely full. And John makes sure to include the detail in here that they were filled to the brim. Now, on one hand, it's likely that John included this detail in order to point out that nothing could have been added to the water, right? He wanted to make sure that people knew that this was a miraculous work that could only be performed by somebody who was in direct control over nature. So this wasn't some sleight of hand. This is a genuine transformation from water to wine. But also, there's a deeper meaning to these water pots being filled up. When we remember what their purpose is, that becomes unraveled. So remember, these stone pots, they were used to adhere to these Old Testament rites of purification. And so by filling them completely full, what Jesus is doing is he's revealing that this old covenant where these purification laws come from, that's being fulfilled in him. And he makes this even more clear by transforming this cleansing, purifying water into wine, revealing that this water, this undefiled water that they use to cleanse themselves is no longer needed. But also the symbolism gets even deeper when we take into account that Jesus, later on in his life, 
uses wine as a symbol of his own blood. Matthew 26, verses 27 through 29 say, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, to, when he, had given thanks he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So not only is Jesus taking these jars that are used for Jewish purification and filling them up with something else, he's filling them with wine that is a direct representation of his own blood. See, by performing this sign, Jesus, we already know his mind was on the cross, he's pointing us directly ahead to what's to come later on in him on the cross. He's using this miracle as a metaphor for exactly what he has come to do in his time on earth. See, what Jesus is doing right here is he's revealing that the only way to be truly cleansed and purified is through his blood and nothing else. What he's saying here is that we can wash ourselves with all of the ceremonial water in the world, but we'll still come out filthy, stained, and guilty covered in our own sinfulness. And what's cool about this is this is the miracle that kicks off Jesus' ministry. Like, this is how he steps on the scene. This is how he starts it all out. Verse 11 says this was the first of his signs. So this was the very first one. So Jesus, think about it. He could have walked on water. He could have calmed a big storm. He could have literally brought somebody back from the dead if he wanted to. But instead, he chose to do this, provide wine at a wedding feast. And he did so in order to make it completely clear from the very beginning what he had come to do in his time on earth. So in this passage, we see wine as a symbol for two things. We see it as a symbol for joy and as a symbol for the blood of Christ. And first of all, let's notice the correlation between these two things, joy and the blood of Christ. There is no joy without the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is where our joy comes from. See, what he's saying here is you can try to find joy in all of these other avenues of your life, but without the blood of Christ, those things will always come up short. The only source of true, eternal, everlasting joy is in the blood of Christ and only in the blood of Christ. And while we may constantly try to find joy in all these other places, just like the wedding party at Cana, we're always going to come up short. But let's also notice the abundance at which Christ provides these things right here. John wrote in verse 6 that each of these six stone water jars held anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons of water. Now, lucky for you guys, my wife's a math teacher, so she was able to help me with my calculations here. That means that Jesus provided the wedding feast with anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. Even with the crowd that they would have had at a wedding feast like that, that amount would have been absolutely more than enough to satisfy the wedding party for the rest of the week and even make a generous wedding gift for the bride and the groom to take home after the fact. And see, what we have here in this is an image of the incredible, lavish grace that Christ provides to all who put their faith in him. In this, we see this abundance of joy, this joy that we as humans desperately crave and desperately pursue for our entire lives, given freely and in excess to everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. So as we look back in celebration of this, this incredible miracle that Jesus chose to begin his ministry, what we see more clearly than anything is this beautiful picture of Jesus on the cross. We see him freely giving his blood 
in order that we might have joy and have it in abundance. But like we talked about earlier, we have to remember that looking back on what Jesus has already done, that's only half of the Advent celebration. Remember, we're also celebrating in Advent this idea of looking ahead at what Jesus is going to do when he returns again. And when we look ahead, what we find is there's another wedding feast mentioned later on that we're to set our eyes on now. If you will, turn with me to the book of Revelation in chapter 19. I'll start reading in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was, granted to clo- it was granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So in spirit of Advent, as we look ahead, what we see is John, the very same author who wrote this story about Jesus in the wedding at Cana, provides us with another account of a wedding feast later on. And this wedding feast that John writes about later on that's going to come later is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what this is, this is an image of the final celebratory feast when Christ returns in glory and finally death is defeated and and the world is restored back to its perfect working order. See, this is the feast to end all feasts and it's the celebration of the marriage of Christ the Lamb and his bride, the church, finally united in perfection for all of eternity. Now think with me for a minute, how cool is that, that all of Christ's work on earth is bookended by two wedding feasts? See, in the first feast, he provides his people with wine in abundance in order to reveal what he's going to do later. And in his final feast, he rests at this wedding celebration in the fact that his work is finally complete. Jesus begins and he ends his ministry on earth by providing an abundance at a wedding feast for a group of people who are completely incapable of providing for themselves. So in honor of this Advent season, we look back on this wedding feast in Cana and the incredible picture of the gospel that it paints. But also, we look ahead now knowing what that first feast represented was completed on the cross by Jesus. And now those of us who have been saved by his grace can now look forward to and find our joy in the marriage supper of the Lamb that is going to come later. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you again for this morning and for this time that we have to celebrate this Advent season. God, I thank you um, for what this Advent celebration represents. I thank you that Jesus came to earth, that he gave his life on the cross, that he died so that we could know him and have a relationship with him. And now I pray that those of us who do have a relationship with him can confidently look ahead in the future knowing that he's going to return again one day. And when he does, everything is going to be restored and made perfect. God, I pray that we find comfort in this passage right here, that while we won't ever find joy on earth, while every place that we pursue joy will continue to to leave us wanting, leave us lacking, that we can find joy in your gospel, that we can find joy in the good news that one day, if we have a relationship with you, we will sit at that final wedding feast and we will celebrate in abundance the joy that Christ has provided for us. God, I pray this Christmas season that that be what we focus on, that we find our joy and we find our purpose and our fulfillment in those things. I thank you and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.